3: your daily dose of acid this morning
4: (laughs) you know a baby before every single performance that's a little known fact that most people don't know about me Mm -hmm. is that i take two tabs of acid before every single podcast
3: good acid being b12 (laughs) (laughs) welcome to no dogs
4: in space everybody i'm marcus parks
3: oh and i'm carolina hidalgo
4: and we're continuing today with the story of the stooges
3: yeah the second part is always the meteor part of a (laughs) sandwich
4: it really (laughs) it really is like on the second part we're going to be covering uh the first two stooges albums along with fucking everything else that happened around those albums
3: yeah And oh, a lot of it did.
4: (laughs) So when we last left the band, the Stooges were still experimenting with the stage personas that would come to define them as one of the most confrontational and exciting live groups of the late 60s and early 70s. The thing about artists like the Stooges, who do something totally new, is that those groups don't appear just fully formed on stage from the outset. And usually when you're doing something new, the road to genius is pretty goddamn rough. See, when the Stooges first started, while they did see that the hippie scene was essentially vapid and empty, Stooges saw that shit immediately. <laughs> they still had the hippie-like optimism in their experimentation with the avant-garde, because the Stooges started off as an avant-garde band.
3: Oh yeah, don't forget the Osterizer. I've, how could
4: I ever forget the Osterizer?
3: <laughs> <laughs> it belongs at a museum.
4: <laughs> but the Stooges were starting to realize that blind hippie optimism wasn't getting them or anyone else anywhere and after that bad acid trip we talked about in the last episode iggy pop in particular was realizing that what people did respond to when it came to his performances was brutality aggression and a fair amount of nihilism
3: he called his music a savage blowtorch of nihilism <laughs>
4: <laughs> I right, mean, that's pretty accurate i'd say yeah it, oh yeah it's more than a fair amount of nihilism <laughs> But, like, nihilism in 1969, like, that shit wasn't selling. But they were doing it anyway.
3: Uh, You know, I heard in a BBC interview that Iggy Pop did in 1976, so Mm -hmm. this is, like, after the Stooges.
4: Oh, yeah, that's way after the Stooges.
3: And uh, he said that Iggy seems to do what Jim needs to and can't bring himself to do. Oh,
4: that sounds fucking awful.
3: I don't know what that means exactly.
4: i gotta film well we're definitely gonna explore that concept quite a bit in episode three because at this point he's still tinkering with it he's still he, he hasn't quite given himself over to iggy pop because jim osterberg and Iggy pop are two extremely different people
3: oh right because he used to wear loafers
4: <laughs> yeah exactly uh love. we'll also get into uh, david Bowie's nickname for iggy pop which is just Jimmy.
3: Jimmy. Come here, Jimmy. I like it.
4: And don't forget, this is still, like I said, 1968 in America. Besides all the good time vibes, you also had the fucking Vietnam
3: War. Conflict.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you still had the draft. The draft was sending thousands of kids to their death Every fucking month. It was still a very real threat to every young man in America if you weren't in college or if you weren't rich enough to get out of it. And the Stooges, they were in neither of those situations.
3: That's right. I mean, Iggy did go to college, but he only went for a semester. Because he was a musician. Well, yeah. and he doesn't
4: need to go to college.
3: He didn't, he didn't want any rules. <laughs> <laughs> he tell him when papers due. <laughs> so Iggy was actually caught in the midst of all this and being drafted because uh, Jeep Holland, who was managing the Prime Movers, which mm-hmm. Iggy was in at the time, Jeep Holland said uh, that he actually did manage to get a lot of musicians out of the draft. He counted about 20. Wow. Yeah, so the version that Jeep says is that Iggy stood in line with the other men when they were being tested for everything, and they were told to take off their clothes all the way down to their underwear. But Iggy got completely naked and grabbed onto his dick. And he was yelling like, no one is touching my dick.
4: No one's touching my dick, man.
3: No one. And they had these people in the army like who had to like try to pick him up. They literally picked him up on each side. And they could not pry his arms open because, you know, he's a drummer. He has arms of steel. Oh,
4: yeah. No, we're strong. <laughs> like, could they tried prying his hands off of his dick.
3: It didn't happen. <laughs> And Jeep Holland said the whole thing lasted 30 minutes. That's a
4: long... Like, 30 minutes doesn't seem like a long amount of time, but 30 minutes of someone trying to pry your hands (laughs) off of your dick while you're screaming and squirming around, 30 minutes is a long fucking time.
3: So, obviously, they told him, like, just get out.
5: Yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Iggy's version in his autobiography, I Need More, uh, he said he got naked but still made sure to jerk off a little to get hard. (laughs) and when someone noticed he started yelling and shaking all over and over again he just acting all cracked out he's like I'm really scared man
4: I'm real scared scared. man I get hard when I get scared I'm sorry
3: and they asked him like oh well why are you scared he's like cause I'm Gay. <laughs> and having men in their underwear around me is just making me really, really gay. He <laughs> <laughs> kept yelling, like, help me. <laughs> no. And that lasted an hour and a half.
4: <laughs> you just got to keep going sometimes. <laughs> just got to keep going.
3: And so Ron Ashton, he also had to go up uh, later, like a couple years later, since mm. he was a little younger. Um, but all he had to do was stay up for a couple days and show up drunk. Yeah. <laughs>
4: I don't know I mean even though all this is like it's funny it's kind of goofy I mean remember these guys were having to do this shit to escape certain death yeah because I'm not sure how long private James Osterberg would have lasted in fucking Vietnam
3: (laughs) oh not very long either that or he would have been like that surfer dude in Apocalypse Now (laughs) and he would have just wandered around high and just gone home so in
4: order to channel all of this negative shit Jim Osterberg created the character of Iggy as we know him today. See, the wild man persona of Iggy in those days pretty much just lived on stage. Because Jim still had to get the Stooges to rehearsal every day.
3: The rehearsals were only 20 minutes long. (laughs) That's like an errand.
4: You've never been in a band. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) It's difficult. It's very (laughs) difficult. (laughs) But more and more, people were starting to see that Jim wasn't coming around so much, making Iggy the dominant personality, which was admittedly more fun, but also much more destructive. And really, what Iggy Pop did is pretty much what Bowie did with personas like the Thin White Duke and Ziggy Stardust a few years later. It's just that Iggy Pop did it first and only did it once. But we'll get into the relationship between Mm -hmm. David Bowie and Iggy Pop on part three.
3: Oh, and don't forget Chris Gaines. (laughs) Thanks to Iggy Pop, we have Chris Gaines, the alter ego
4: of Garth Brooks. How could I ever forget Chris Gaines? Remember that Saturday Night Live where it was Garth Brooks hosting and Chris Gaines, musical (laughs) guest?
3: I remember Garth Brooks in Empty Nest, and he he seemed like a nice guy.
4: (laughs) You know what? He really is a nice guy. I've heard good things. (laughs) So while Jim Osterberg was fine-tuning Iggy Pop, a young man from Elektra Records came to Detroit to see the MC5. That man's name was Danny Fields. Of course, Danny Fields was immortalized forever in the fantastic Ramones track, Danny Says.
6: Danny says we gotta go, gotta go to Idaho.
4: Yeah. And we'll definitely get into uh, the relationship between Danny Fields and the Ramones when we do our series on the Ramones. Yes. Yeah, it's going to be great.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Danny Fields, he's a really smart guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, he was deep into the arts and music scene. He wrote for magazines, and he DJed a radio show for WFMU.
4: Oh, I love WFMU. I still listen to WFMU in the shower almost every day. You do? Yeah, I absolutely love WFMU. Danny Fields, his career as a magazine writer, uh, <laughs> he was actually the guy that broke the Beatles bigger than Jesus story
3: yeah <laughs> you know he was friends with uh, Lin- uh, Linda McCartney mm-hmm. and like really good friends <laughs> and then they're all hanging out together and Linda goes you know it was Danny who did that <laughs> and Paul's like really <laughs> really you're eating my food <laughs>
4: Yeah, and it wasn't even like it, I think it was in like Seventeen magazine or something like that because Danny Fields started his career in magazines for like teenage girls, right? It was like yeah, teen, it's a date. Yes, like de- first date or some something weird like that. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's how he started his career was in uh, yeah the the teen magazine. So all you guys out there working in uh, careers, you're like, ah, eh, this isn't quite right for me. Just keep building, keep going, keep going.
3: Because he eventually worked with Jim Morrison. Uh, The Velvet Underground, The Modern Lovers, and later discovered the Ramones, like you said, and managed them. Uh, But the thing about Danny Fields is that he is the most likable guy ever. He's so likable.
4: I just want to like. I I, I keep looking around at like every old Jewish man on the train and thinking like, is that Danny
3: Fields? I hope it is.
4: (laughs) I wonder, could I talk to him? Like, could I see? Because he still he lives here in the city still.
3: Yeah, 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 we might have. (laughs) Yeah, he's a New York City guy, and he came to Detroit to check out and eventually signed the MC5 while working for Elektra Records. Remember, he was hired as a publicist by Jack Holtzman, the director of Electro Records. Mm-hmm. because And that was when Danny was labeled as like the company freak, the guy who finds what's cool out there, what the kids are listening to.
4: And that was his actual job title was company freak. <laughs>
3: publicist, company freak, head of promotions, yeah, but company that's- freak. <laughs>
4: That's the funny thing is that company freak just meant it's like yeah I'll smoke a joint at my table I don't I don't care <laughs> <laughs> that's how cool I am I'll always smoke a joint at my desk try to t- tell me no so
3: cool man <laughs> and the reason why he was hired for this is because uh, Elektra Records until 1966 were just mainly only uh, folk music folk music and classical music. Yes, and that's when they made a ton of money with the classical music. They uh, they started another label under Elektra called Nonsuch Records. Mm-hmm. And that it made a European classical music. So they had all this extra money because it sold so well. Jack Holtzman's like, you know what? Let's get into something psychedelic.
4: Actually, I would like to play a little bit of what Electra Records was putting out before The Doors, before The Stooges, before all of that cool shit. Some of the folk records that they put out were absolutely insane. <laughs> one of the guys that Electra had on their label for two decades is a guy named Oscar Brand. His albums include Body Songs and Backroom Ballads, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, Bring a song, Johnny, which was just all children's recordings, Rollicking Sea Shanties, Body Hoot Nanny, The Wild bu- Blue Yonder, Give Em the Hook, or Songs That Killed Vaudeville, Boating Songs and All That Build, Sports Cars and Songs, Every Inch a Sailor, Out of the Blue, and Tell It to the Marines. <laughs> I wanted wings
6: till I got the goddamn wings. Now I don't want them anymore They oh, taught me no. how to fight <laughs> And they sent me off to die Well, I have had a belly full of war You can save those bloody zeros For the other goddamn heroes Distinguished flying crosses Do not compensate for losses A, a buster I
5: never <laughs> wings till I got the goddamn thing Now
6: I don't want them
3: anymore
6: Yes, that's
4: pretty good. That's some pretty good anti-war music.
3: I don't know. Let's do psychedelic instead.
4: <laughs> yeah, All Along the Watchtower, I would say, is better.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I would definitely, I would listen to that again rather than I Wanted Wings. But that's, you know, but that's the type of shit that, uh, that Electra Records was putting out for 20 years.
3: and it, Yeah, and it worked. Yeah. It, it worked very well for them. Yeah. And then when they decided to go psychedelic, that was going to work too, right? (laughs) (laughs) Immediately. So Danny Fields gets hired by Elektra. He knows everyone, including uh, John Sinclair, who Mm -hmm. we talked about before. John Sinclair goes down to the radio station, WFMU, and says, hey, you got to check out this band in Michigan. Danny's like, all right, I'm going to Detroit. I'm going to check out this band, the MC5.
4: So when Danny went to Detroit in September of 1968, he'd never heard of the psychedelic stooges. Because remember, that's what the Stooges' original name was. (laughs) Yeah. Danny's only interest during that trip was in the MC5. But the thing about the MC5 is that they'd started looking at the Stooges like a bit of a little brother band. So when Danny came to town, one of the dudes from the MC5 told him that he couldn't leave town without seeing the psychedelic Stooges.
3: The next day, Danny went to see them perform at a benefit concert for the Children's Community School at the Union Ballroom on the U Michigan campus, mm-hmm. and he was blown away. And he this is a quote from him from what he saw from that show. It was like Beethoven finally got here. It was so solid and so modern and so non-blues. How long did it take me to recognize this was something special? Five seconds. Yeah.
4: That's the amazing thing about it is that, you know, Iggy Pop was saying, like, this is my version of the blues, and Danny Field's first impression was, this, there's no fucking
5: blues here.
3: No, but I get it. <laughs> and then he goes backstage to meet Iggy and the rest of the band, and he just, like, opens the door. He's like, you're a star. <laughs> all look up, like, what? What?
4: <laughs> Iggy, you're a star. Boy, I'm going to get you on the first plane to New York City. You're going to be on Broadway for the end of the week.
3: <laughs> and Ron's like, who's this asshole? And Iggy's like, look, man, I'm straight. <laughs> I know there have been rumors.
4: Yeah, and, uh, Danny Fields like, told him, like, hi, I work for Elektra Records. And Iggy Pop thought he was like a janitor or something. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were just starting out. Like, you know, it was... You know, very rare for a band to get attention that early on.
3: They'd been playing just like it was less than a year.
4: Yeah. So after seeing the show and talking to Iggy, Danny called up Jack Holtzman and said Electra Records should sign not only the MC5, but the Psychedelic Stooges as well.
3: Right. And Jack Holtzman's like, great, cool, but we got to go see them. Mm-hmm. So Jack and Bill Harvey, uh, the president of Electra, saw them perform October 8th at uh, the Fifth Dimension. And then that's when it finally happened. They finally got signed. They were opening for the Fifth Dimension? No, it was the venue called Fifth Dimension. Uh. <laughs> no, they were not opening for the Fifth Dimension. I was
4: about to say that. I was. My brain was starting to get real confused real <laughs> fast. <laughs> so the MC5 got offered a $20,000 advance while the psychedelic Stooges got an offer of 5000 Now, of course, both bands said, fuck yes, sign us right now. But there was only one condition with the psychedelic stooges. For God's sake, drop the psychedelic. Just be... The Stooges.
3: For five grand? Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. And,
3: and you know, Electra actually had to call Mo Howard <laughs> from the Three Stooges. And it, it must have been a weird afternoon for Mo Howard. He just picks up the phone and, and then they're like, hey, we got this band. You're, uh, is it okay that they're called the Stooges? And Mo Howard's like, who is this? <laughs> and then they explain to him, he's like, no, it's not a comedy troupe. It's not a comedy band. They're just a band. And he's just like, yeah.
4: Sure. As long as they're not the three stooges. That's right. (laughs) Who gives a shit? (laughs) Well, that's the funny thing is that the Stooges, uh, I think it was, was it Ron Ashton, like, actually made friends with Larry Fine?
3: Yeah, the other Stooges.
4: Yeah, the other, yeah, not Curly, just, yeah, made friends with Larry. <laughs> and, like, they, they would hang out sometimes.
3: Oh, yeah, no, <laughs> they spent time, like, a lot of time talking together, and, and, and Larry would always be like, you got any smokes on you? <laughs> he liked having him around. To bring
4: some of those cigars in here, there's a nurse in here that's trying to keep me alive. <laughs> 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 but the problem the Stooges had was that even though they'd been playing together by this point for almost a year, their showtime was still clocking in at only about 20 minutes.
3: <laughs> it takes a while to, you know, get enough material.
4: It really does. I mean, to, get, to have a full album within a year, like, it, it's rare. I mean, it happens. I mean, the I think the Strokes had a full album within, like, nine months or something like that. Like, it was real fucking fast, but they were practicing A lot more. A (laughs) little longer. A little longer. (laughs) A little longer than like, you know, 20 minutes, like just getting high together and fucking around with a blender. And then like, okay, that's good, guys. See you later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in other words, even though the Stooges had just signed a record deal, they didn't have enough songs to fill even side A of an album. So the Stooges started having high volume practices every night to develop a recordable, sellable sound. Even though rehearsals are still only 20, 20 minutes.
3: <laughs> That's all it is. It's a sitcom.
4: But, uh, but also, like, being in a band, like, sometimes you will have a rehearsal where you're in the same room together for three hours, but you actually play for only about 20 <laughs> or 30 minutes. What else are you doing? Hanging out.
3: Oh, You're right.
4: hanging out with your buddies, having a couple beers, talking about this and that and whatnot. And then
3: you go home and it's like, I forgot, what were we doing? <laughs>
4: Well, meanwhile, Danny Fields was trying to find the right producer to transfer what he saw in Detroit onto an album, and he thought he'd found it in the Velvet Underground's John Cale, heard here playing the viola.
6: Sacrificials remain, make it hard to forget, We well, come from, the stools of your eyes serve to realize fame. Choose again. And robe is refrain of
4: the sacrilege recluse for the loss of a horse with the bowels and the tail of a rat.
6: Come again, choose to go. <laughs>
4: Now, as anyone who sat down and listened to The Velvet Underground's first album knows, John Cale was a man who knew how to meld the avant guard with straight rock and roll, especially when you consider that the clip we just played is on the same album as Run, Run, Run.
6: Teenage bear, said Uncle Dave, I saw my soul. Must be safe Gonna take a walk Down Union square You never know We you gonna find there You gotta run, 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 run Take the jacket too Run, 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 run Jim's it never you Tell hey, what you do Margarita passion, I had to get her fixed She wasn't well, she was getting sick Went to sell her soul, she wasn't high Didn't know, think she could buy it She would run. run, 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 take the dragon too Run, 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 chips to death in you
5: Tell you what to do Another
4: thing you gotta remember is that while we know of the Velvet Underground's first album as a half-century-old relic of New York hipness, when the Stooges were signed, that album had only come out the year before. Really? Yeah, maybe two years before.
5: Okay. Yeah. Yeah,
4: I mean, it's but less than five. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it was. Oh yeah. It was a super recent, super cool, super hip album, and it's fun. It's really fun to think about that, like, because you know, we, I'm sure. We both heard Velvet Underground and Nico For the first time probably in college right Yeah and, yeah yeah Yeah, And by that time it was 40 years old um, But it's fun to think like in that time Like John Cale was like A hip, cool new young dude That was like doing cool shit Where now he's you know God, all these people are Godfathers now, but back then all these guys were just kind of in the mix together.
3: That's one thing I've noticed by looking up all these people. I'm like, oh, what they were like fifty or something. <laughs> oh, they've been in the record industry for twenty years. What do you mean you're twenty nine?
5: <laughs> it's
3: it's weird.
4: It's very it's very strange. Yeah, but before Kale went into the studio with the Stooges, he wanted to get to know the band a little bit first. So he traveled from New York City. To Ann Arbor, Michigan for a nice little visit to the Fun
3: House. John Kill had fun at the Fun House. <laughs> He yeah. did. Oh, well, except the only problem he really had with them was, like, there was no food ever. <laughs> was, he opened a fridge and be like, there's only Bud Lights in there or something. <laughs> and he's like, hey, where's the food? And then, like, how do you eat? And Iggy's like, whatever, man.
4: <laughs> Think I got some beans.
3: Yeah. Like, I mean, that was another way for Iggy to get people motivated is that like, he would send out for food mm-hmm. or get everyone high and then that's the only way to get it to work. And so John Cale got to see all that. John Cale was also weird in his own right. Yeah. I mean, he would just walk around <laughs> like half naked.
4: Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the funny thing. Isn't Like, it? like
3: black bikini briefs.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it is funny because like we're talking about John Cale like John Cale's the adult. In this situation He's the same fucking age as these guys Like maybe a little bit older uh, But not much older
3: Really not much And he would still like He would be drinking red wine And hanging out Drugs Maybe take him sometimes mm-hmm. Chasing after girls Like he was just Yeah he was just another guy
4: Yeah Yeah after seeing the Stooges live, Kale totally got what they were going for, and he was impressed enough to bring the band to New York City to hang out at Maxis, Kansas City, and Andy Warhol's factory, which, those were two clubs that were the absolute height of New York cool. And it was at the factory that Iggy met an eternally bored German model-cum-singer named Nico. And
6: what you share the she turned once more to Sunday's cloud and cried behind the
3: door Oh Nico <laughs> a female Zoolander. <laughs> The thing about Nico, I mean, she she was an actress, she was a singer, she was a songwriter. She did a lot in her lifetime.
4: Yeah. And I you know, mean Nico was like a true artist.
3: Fellini discovered her. <laughs> she knew how to hang around the coolest people ever.
5: Yeah.
4: You know,
3: Andy Warhol and just kind of because she was so striking, but also she had this like crazy exotic German thing going on Which was very hot Yeah And she also sang famously With the Velvet Underground
0: Of
4: course And had two fantastic albums In her own right Marble Index And uh, Chelsea Girl Both fucking great albums I mean like Marble Index Marble like, Index <laughs> <laughs> You only need to, listen to Marble Index like once
3: It's very depressing It's
4: very depressing
3: I'm glad that it's there Of course But I don't need to Hear it again
4: It's like a It's like a Super depressing movie Like where you just Kind of only need to Watch Irreversible once
3: Yeah. (laughs) oh yeah
4: yes like it's not your favorite movie
3: and if you want to watch it zero times I totally respect that
4: (laughs) no I mean but Nico was uh, I mean she was a true fucking artist and she had a beautiful voice I mean I know her voice can be a bit of a uh, acquired taste uh, but I fucking love Nico
6: now that it's time now that the are that the dreams have given all they had to lend I want to know, do I stay or do I go and maybe try another time? And do I really have a
3: hand in my forgetting?
4: I'm a big Nico fan.
3: Iggy was a big Nico fan for a long time, too. He, he actually said, he quote, I was one of the very few who actually liked her music.
0: <laughs> Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. When, uh,
3: when the Stooges did come, like, they ended up coming to the Warhol. Factory, and they just hung around with all these people. And Iggy just immediately with the New York scene, he just—I mean—they were already known because they just got signed and everything. He just took to it very well. Yeah. Ron and Scott and Dave, <laughs> these are Midwestern boys. Yeah. Not so much uh, like Iggy is. Uh, they kind of just sat on the couch and like with their sunglasses on, like sipping their drinks and just be like, man, this is. We're leaving
4: (laughs) Yeah What the fuck Are we doing here They
3: didn't last Very long there They just couldn't Mingle in I mean even when They met uh, Andy Warhol Again later In LA Like they just uh, Avoided him Yeah And Iggy just Went in for it he I, didn't care. He wasn't he was fearless. I mean honestly, I would have been one of the Ashtons.
4: Like if I <laughs> would have been in this situation, like going to Andy Warhol's factory, like yeah, I would have just sat on the couch and said, like, I don't know what to say to these people.
3: What do we do? <laughs> we just stand there, we're posing. <laughs> and there's all these bright lights on me.
4: Yeah, it's like, what am I gonna go talk to fucking Twiggy? I don't know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but but so Nico and Iggy met each other. And immediately, it, Nico just being so enamored with this guy, who's this amazing like performer, and Iggy's like this woman is striking and beautiful and so experienced and much older, like ten years older than him at the time. Mm-hmm. He was twenty one. They just kind of got on together like almost immediately and they're just walking around holding hands <laughs> and everything and, and, and just kind of making out. They were in the club scene together and everyone just kept doing like double takes yeah. or spitting out their drink. Well, She's with him? <laughs> Jessica Rabbit is with Roger Rabbit of the music scene?
4: Well, I, the, they said, I think it please kill me that Nico's taste in men was what? Tragic poets, tragic self-destructive poets because because before Iggy Pop Nico dated Jim Morrison. Yeah. So she had a type. And when the Stooges went back to Ann Arbor to the Funhouse, Nico went with them.
3: Yeah, she did. She stayed there some people said a few weeks, I really think it was a few months.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh she stayed there, but you know what? The other guys didn't mind her this time. Like they really didn't. Like she would make a lot of brown rice and vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> At least they got to eat. Yeah. And then she'd leave around like bottles of red wine for like good wine for yeah. them to drink and they're just like she's all right and she stayed with with Iggy she taught him how to eat pussy <laughs>
5: <laughs> and good for her Good
4: for her And good for him <laughs> And good for him Yeah and they uh, Hell they made a little movie together too Like I can't remember what it was called But they went out into the field And uh, painted an Iggy's face white And uh, made a nice little short film
3: Yeah that was the evening of light song That she was doing like a little promotional You know this is before MTV mm-hmm. Video that she did She found like this uh, French guy Francois de menil and he was really interested in making some sort of film with her, and she's like, "You got to come to Ann Arbor because I'm here with Iggy and the guys, and they're gonna be in the movie too." And he's like, "All right, you could find it on YouTube. It's just them like kind of walking around yeah. outside the uh, fun house. Uh, she's like all in white, and there's like mannequins everywhere. It's just very, it's very, <laughs> it's, it looks like a, a horror movie slash European artsy film." Yeah.
4: And it's fun, but I can only imagine, like, fucking Nico, like, this, like, German uh, art star, suddenly finding herself in fucking Ann Arbor, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> like, suddenly roommates with Iggy Pop. Like, it seems like such a fucking fantastic, like, it seems like such an out-of-this-world experience.
3: Yeah, well, she, she had a good time, and they had a great time together, but th- there were times also when Iggy had to do his own thing. Like, she would call up Danny Fields and be like... Iggy's so mean to me.
4: (laughs) Danny, Iggy's being mean again.
3: Oh, no. And (laughs) Danny's just like, what did you expect?
4: (laughs) Everyone knew he was an asshole. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So after Nico left Ann Arbor, it was time for the Stooges to actually get to work on the album itself. And since they didn't really have the songs, but they were still fantastically talented musicians, Kale told them to just forget about the stage show and just concentrate on the album itself. And so, Ron sat down and right out of the gate, wrote the foundations for the two best songs on the album. One, 1969, you heard at the beginning of the first episode, but the other was a song that was so simple yet impactful that it became the de facto tryout song for punk bands for decades to come. Because it was the one song that fucking... Everybody knew. That song was I Wanna Be Your Dog.
3: I love that song. Hey, you remember when I got you that vinyl for uh, Christmas like three years ago?
4: You got me a first pressing of The Stooges' first record. Yes, it was one of the best gifts I've ever gotten in my entire life.
3: Oh, thank you. That (laughs) that song reminds me of that. Of
4: course. Man, nobody can do Come On like Iggy Pop.
3: Yeah. Come On! (laughs)
4: Like, it's just, it's the best come on in rock and roll. But as the Stooges were writing these fantastic songs, their seemingly endless stream of bad luck when it came to the actual business of being in a band began when Danny Fields got fired from Electra.
3: Yeah, well, you know, Danny is wonderful as he is. He is a
4: wonderful man. Go watch the, the documentary Danny Says. It's on Netflix. Tells you everything you need to know about Danny Fields. It's fucking great.
3: But he did get fired. Yes. Because he pissed off the vice president of Electra. Bill Harvey, his daughter was getting married and he made a joke around the office saying like, sounds like a shotgun wedding, if you ask me.
4: <laughs> it's so fucking dumb. And Bill it's Harvey a-
3: punched him in the face.
4: <laughs> punched him. It's the dumbest shit. Like all of these things, like it's not, no one is fucking up on principle. No one's fucking, <laughs> like everyone's just making dumbass decisions left and right. Because after Danny Fields got fired, the MC5 decided they needed to start fucking up for no reason as well.
3: (laughs) Oh, fuck Hudson.
4: (laughs) Yeah, oh, fuck Hudson's.
3: (laughs) Okay, so Hudson's uh, used to be a record chain store in the Detroit area, and they refused to sell MC5 records with the word motherfucker in the liner notes of the album.
4: Just in the liner notes. Like, not even in the lyrics. Like, it was just in the liner notes, which is a, a dumb decision. Like, I think, like, Hudson's was definitely wrong here
3: <laughs> and, however however <laughs> john sinclair and or the mc5 took out a full page ad in the ann arbor uh, argus newspaper and detroit's fifth estate that said kick out the gyms motherfuckers and kick in the door the store won't sell you the album on electra fuck hudson's <sighs> with the electra logo on it <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, it looked like Electra was behind this. I know,
4: I know. And they just did <laughs> all this shit themselves. It's like I understand that it sounds like a good idea at the time, and I understand putting up your fucking middle finger. You know, and but you also gotta understand as well, it's like these are dudes in their twenties. Like these are all dudes in their early twenties. They're not thinking shit through, but the thing is about it is that the MC5 were on a trajectory at this point. Like, yeah. the MC5 should have been one of the biggest bands of the late 60s, early 70s. Oh, they were great. The MC5, everyone should know who the MC5 are, but the MC5 just never quite made it over the top because this little fucking stunt right here completely ruined any momentum that the MC5 had because they got dropped from Electra. Because as soon as Electra heard about it, because Hudson's actually did have a pretty sizable chunk of the Midwest market, and Electra still had all those classical music records to sell. Like, Electra was still in the only way that they could get their records back into Hudson's was to drop the MC5. So the MC5 got dropped from Electra and they never recovered. But the one good thing that came out of all this mess... Was that even though the Stooges were now tainted by their association to Danny Fields and the MC5...
3: Oh, don't worry. They're going to taint their own (laughs) reputations very soon.
4: Plenty plenty of tainting to come. Their manager, Jimmy Silver, was able to negotiate a bigger advance. And the Stooges ended up with $25,000 in their pocket, which in today's money is almost... $200,000. That's
3: a lot of drug money. It's a
4: ton. It's way too much money to give to a bunch of 21-year-old kids that really
3: like drugs. So maybe the MC5 being dropped was good for the Stooges? They got to focus primarily on the Stooges now.
4: (sighs) Yeah, they did. I mean, it, it did. There are some unintended consequences. You know, the MC5 gets taken down a peg, but the Stooges go up a peg and it really is one of those kind of weird what if moments in rock and roll history i mean even though Like, the MC5 did end up being huge influences on all kinds of people in the punk scene later on. Like, you kind of wonder how the fabric of, like, the American rock music scene would have changed had the MC5 reached the levels of, say, like, not even necessarily, like, a Led Zeppelin, but maybe, like, The Doors. Like, if the MC5 had gotten to that level, like, if the MC5 would have got just one number one hit. I mean, I think rock music would have changed.
3: Yeah, because I think they made one more album, and then that was the end of it.
4: Yeah, that was yeah, that was it. And there was like a few live albums afterwards. Um, you know, Fred Sonic Smith went out and married Patti Smith. The other guys just kind of went off and did whatever. <laughs>
5: <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Yeah, we'll,
4: we'll talk about that. Yes, we'll talk about that later. It is like the, the MC5, if only they hadn't put out that fucking mm-hmm. ad. The whole... Well, uh, the the whole were, fucking fabric of American rock music could have changed.
3: I don't know about that. Actually, there were a couple other things that that also happened that added to it. it was, yeah, it, it
4: was. I mean, that was definitely the la- that was the gunshot to the head.
3: And then, well, also Iggy did say in the Total Chaos book, he's like, "Yeah, too bad about the MC5." Also, there was like some photos circulating around with them and some kind of naked woman.
4: Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah,
3: so, you know, something that just didn't look good. Didn't you know, look right. like And, you know, and she's smelling the glove.
4: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, as we said on the first episode, the MC5 has since apologized yes. for all of their misogynist behavior. So, the Stooges showed up at the hit factory in Times Square and got to the recording of their debut album. Now, one of the most famous stories about the recording has to do with with volume. From what the Stooges said, they didn't think they sounded like the Stooges unless all the amps were turned up to 10, and John Cale kept trying to convince them This is going to sound really fucking bad. You're not supposed to do that. It's going to blow everything out and everything's just going to sound like mud.
3: Why why is there a 10 then? (laughs) (laughs) You follow my logic? Uh,
4: The story goes that the Stooges staged a strike in the studio and refused to play until a compromise was reached to turn the volume (laughs) to nine. But John Cale said he doesn't remember any of this
3: you're wasting studio time a-
4: <laughs> yeah they only had they had five days to record this album
3: plus they actually added another three when they realized they weren't done yet
4: <laughs> yeah John Kale later said if there was a sit-down strike it wasn't because they were angry with anything I said more likely they just wanted to have a beer most likely most likely <laughs> But either way, this seminal album was recorded damn near live with no multi-tracking, and no song took more than two or three takes, because like I said, they only had five days to finish it. In fact, some album tracks like this one are the first
5: take
6: Can I come over tonight? Can I come over tonight? What do you think I want to do? That's right. Can I come over tonight? I say we will have a real cool time tonight. I say we will have
4: a real cool time tonight. Now, as fucking great as that song is, to be fair, the lyrics to that song, Real Cool Time, are mostly We Will Have a Real Cool Time Tonight.
3: Can I come over?
4: And part of the reason why that song and a few of the others sound so raw is because the Stooges wrote a lot of them the night before. For better or worse.
3: Oh, papers due by noon, man. <laughs> we gotta get cracking. <laughs> Which they did at the Chelsea Hotel,
4: mm-hmm. yeah. where eventually uh, Nancy Spungen ended up dying.
3: Oh, that's right, yeah. dying, murdered, killed. <laughs> <laughs> so they show up to New York, and they're like, Ah, we're ready to record an album. We're good, man. Yes. <laughs> and then they're asked, Oh, cool, but you got any more songs? And they're like, You betcha.
4: <laughs> and then they. You ran- bet your bottom dollar <laughs> they ran up
3: to the hotel and was like fuck okay all right all right ron you get on that guitar now and come up with some riffs i'll be back in an hour of lyrics scott get me a pet uh this is a hotel room they always have pets and then they just rehearsed it a few times and bam they had an album oh man and in these
4: songs like you can hear some of the subtle influences we talked about in the last episode even in the frat rock songs because What's the uh, the old line? Uh, I think it was like Steinbeck said, that, like uh, "Good artists create, great artists steal." Uh, right. There was a lot of
5: theft <laughs> in, the,
4: <laughs> in this in this album, in this, which the Stooges totally admit to. Uh, but just for an example of like one of the things that kinda, I think they did not admit to stealing this. This is just one of my own little things. This is only Mark. <laughs> I know this is only me, but. I know there's probably, like, one other person out there that's going to listen to this and go, like, yeah, I kind of hear it. <laughs> Let's listen to a comparison of the 1965 Strangelove's hit, I Want Candy, to 1969 by
3: the Stooges. Good luck. I want candy. I
6: 1969, okay. It's another year for me and you It's the drums! I
5: don't
4: hear I it! <laughs> it's all in... We almost actually almost got into a fight one day because I kept bringing Carolina into the office and being like, I think I got it this time. Listen again.
3: I heard it like seven times in a row because I like to believe that you're right initially.
4: And I appreciate, I definitely appreciate uh, your willingness to indulge me on this. (laughs) (laughs) Then I kept getting mad.
3: (laughs) You should really put a couch in your office because standing there awkwardly is weird.
4: Of course, since... The Stooges were recording this album in New York. Nico came by, and she'd visit here and there. She'd just sit in the control booth next to John Cale. She just knit. (laughs) (laughs) And then John Cale... For some reason, he decided to wear a Dracula cape through the whole thing.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, he'd just seen Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, oh, I believe. Okay, he man. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and the Stooges did manage to get one track that was probably the closest to what they sounded like back in their drone days. That song, clocking in at ten minutes eighteen seconds, is the Velvet Underground influence track "We Will Fall." Then I whispered
5: to
3: You know, that was Dave's doing. Yeah, because uh, Jimmy Silver lent him a book by Swami Ramdas.
4: <laughs> Swami Ramdas, his huh? Holy man. Yeah, he yeah. Little,
3: he was a guru. Uh, and which sounded a lot of like one of his chants, like the Ramja, Ja Ram.
6: Ramja, Ramja.
3: Because Dave Alexander was always into reading uh, mysticism and the occult. Yeah. So that was another Chelsea Hotel job to do. Like, Dave, you take care of the chant thing. Yeah. <laughs> And he did. He did. The song's
4: great. That's that song, I fucking love that song. Uh, and that's the funny thing about the Stooges. The Stooges were really into the occult, at least around that time. But on the other hand, in 1968, 1969, fucking everybody yeah. was into the occult. <laughs> like it was oh, just one. Some it was like
3: ranch in California. I think they got into some weird shit too. <laughs> <laughs> I
4: mean, it was a fad. You know, that, that's the weird thing about the occult. It was like sixty-eight, sixty-nine. yeah. It was just this strange, weird little fad that kind of popped up and then, I don't know, disappeared again.
3: Well, it came back in the 90s, mm-hmm. and it came back again now.
4: Yeah, it, well, well be we're,
3: back. we're trying our best.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing is that some of the Stooges didn't even like the album. Cause they them, hated it. They fucking absolutely hated it, because to them, it didn't sound like the Stooges. You know, Scott Ashton... Lamenting the loss of his beloved oil drums, later described every track outside of We Will Fall as, quote, drippy, dweepy little songs.
3: Oh, that's a good alliteration, though. It's very good,
4: <laughs> it's <laughs> but, very oh. good alliteration, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And what was more, the Stooges fucking hated John kells production on the album, and that wouldn't be the last time the Stooges believed one of their records was ruined post-recording. From what the Stooges say, they were just following orders, and some of them openly wondered afterwards if recording the album was even the right thing to do for the band. Even after the Stooges were revered as legends,
3: well, you got to listen to the John Cale mix. It's on YouTube. It's cool. Yeah, no, I think it's pretty good, but it's very different from what they eventually came out with. Yeah, you know, Iggy Pop had to sit with Jack Holtzman to figure out how to make the band happy. Jack Holtzman said he got someone else to mix it. Iggy at one point said that he mixed it himself. <laughs> Conflicting reports on it, but both versions are on YouTube, and I really like John Gillman.
4: I like the John Cale mix a lot, too.
3: But if it's not the way the Stooges wanted it to be, then so be it, then.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's ultimately, it is up to the band what they want the whole thing to sound like. And honestly, I'm kind of inclined to agree with Scott Ashton when it comes to side two of the record. Because while the first four, maybe five songs, are certifiable classics, the last three sound like demos. I mean, they're ideas of songs rather than actual tracks you'd put on an album. The one exception is possibly Little Doll, but that's only because Little Doll is pretty much just 1969, revisited. Little
6: doll I can't forget Smoking on a cigarette In my life a real queen The prettiest thing I ever seen Uh Uh-huh
3: You know, Iggy said he came up with Little Doll in the lobby at the Chelsea Hotel, and as we know, they were big fans of Pharaoh Sanders, Mm -hmm. and he said he took from uh, the baseline of Upper and Lower Egypt.
4: Yeah, and I definitely uh, checked out Upper and Lower Egypt uh, after hearing that, and yeah... Do you hear it now? Do
3: you hear it now? I want candy.
4: (laughs) Of course, recording the album was the right thing for the Stooges to do, because after they came out of the studio, they had actual songs in addition to confidence, which they didn't really have going in. And so the Stooges returned to Ann Arbor in 1969 feeling damn near invincible, and Iggy started taking the stage shows even further.
3: Iggy was starting to make himself bleed on stage. Yeah, like he started to open up his skin. In one show in Ohio, he used a broken drumstick and just raked it against his chest. Yeah, and and it just like the blood just went through his white shirt, made people nauseous. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I mean, he's try- he's just taking it further and further and further, and man, you can see the scars on him now.
3: Well, he wanted to get a strong reaction, because that show I told you about in Ohio, uh, they played at a venue that could hold, like, hundreds, thousands of people, maybe, and only, like, 12 to 15 showed up and they are all just kind of there bored so he needed to do go to the next level
4: yeah and and that was you know when um back when i was in bands like that was always the philosophy it's like you play the same show for five people as you do for 50 as you do for 500 it's like no matter who's there they came to see a fucking show so put on a good show every fucking time and iggy was taking it further than just blood at one festival in potawatomi beach Iggy, already bleeding after busting his lip with a microphone, started throwing up on stage as Muddy Waters watched From the Wings in disgust. Did he know? <laughs> yeah, he knew Muddy Waters was over there. Oh. Crap. Yeah. <laughs> and in a scene that sounds like straight out of like it's fucking straight out of Mad Magazine, Muddy Waters told his friend that, oh man, those boys need to get themselves an act. And his friend replied, Muddy. That is the act. But it was during this time of increased excess that Iggy Pop met Wendy Weisberg, who was mercifully 19 years old. Now, it was said that Iggy was obsessed with Wendy, but I think it would be more accurate to say that Iggy was obsessed with fucking Wendy. Because Wendy... Was a
5: virgin
3: That's true He did meet her Even before all this Before Be- he got The record deal uh, He met her When he was 19 And they were They were both in college mm-hmm. But back then She was a White Panther's girlfriend So you know One she-
4: of the White Panthers Not just a guy Named White Panther It
3: is a guy Named White Panther
4: <laughs> <laughs> Okay so it's actually A dude named White Panther Alright We keep
3: having this <laughs>
4: <laughs> The late 60's Were a very confusing time
3: Yes But he was too afraid To talk to her Because you know She was so beautiful Uh, But later, he got that confidence after recording the album. So when he was doing that show in Ohio, you know, the one where he bled from the broken drumstick, Mm -hmm. she came from backstage after the show and was like, what did you just do? (laughs) And then he was like, hey, what are you doing later? (laughs) And she's like, I'm with my boyfriend right now. And he said, well, um, uh, can I call you? (laughs) Eventually, he did worm his way into her heart.
4: Yeah, but Wendy was adamant that she would not have sex before marriage. So, to get through that little roadblock,
3: Iggy fucking married her. He bought the cow! <laughs> <laughs> she was very beautiful. She's not a cow. No. <laughs> but yeah, because they got together in May of 1969, and they were married by July 12th oh. of 1969. Just, it was just a few months, and and they got married right outside of the Fun House. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Silver officiated the wedding as an ordained clergyman at the Universal Life Church,
4: which Henry Zabrowski is an ordained minister at the Universal Life Church now because he married us.
3: Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Henry. So the MC5 came, Iggy's parents came, Danny Fields flew in for the wedding because the night before he got a phone call and he's like, you're doing what? (laughs) He had to like rush over there to come to the wedding. And then Ron Ashton served as best man and was nice enough to leave his SS uniform in his closet, but he wore his Luftwaffe uniform (laughs) because he said they were soldiers. It's not political. It's different.
4: Iggy is marrying... Wendy Weisberg.
3: And Jimmy Silver (laughs) is officiating. They were Jewish. (laughs) And it was very nice of Ron. Such a nice guy. He's not a Nazi. As we talked about in the first episode, Ron is not a Nazi. He just has a weird fascination with them. Yeah, yeah. And you know what they serve for dinner? What? Buckwheat casserole.
4: Ugh.
3: Because they were big into macrobiotics.
4: Jimmy Silver was big into macrobiotics.
3: That's right. And the uh, MC5 were so pissed. They didn't <laughs> even have dinner, so they got trashed. <laughs> Everyone had a great time at the wedding, especially uh, when Iggy's friends and his best man were making bets on how long the marriage was going to last.
4: Yeah, Danny Fields said that uh, I think he was quoted as saying, uh, These fucking shoes are going to last longer than this marriage.
3: Ron <laughs> said a month, and he was the closest to everyone else. He won the pot.
4: Technically, he shouldn't have won because he went over for going by Price's right rules. <laughs> <laughs> literally nobody should have won no (laughs) one wins
3: and so Wendy moves in that day she and her friends are moving up all her stuff up to the attic where Iggy was living so they could live together as men and wife Mm -hmm. Iggy just sees all these boxes going up and he's just thinking how am I going to get out of this (laughs) and the guys in the band they didn't like Wendy they called her potato girl (laughs) potato girl
5: I know exactly what
4: they mean what does that mean (laughs) I can't explain it, but I know exactly
3: what it means. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, some things are better laid to rest. Some, th-
4: some things we don't need to get into. <laughs>
3: yeah. but And Iggy had some complaints about Wendy as well. Like, for example, she liked to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she didn't want him smoking pot and hanging around with his loser friends. Uh. So Iggy, like at night, he... Liked to stay up because he slept all day. So at night, he had to lock himself in his closet with his guitar and his amp, trying to be quiet, Mm -hmm. and came up with Down on the Beach.
4: Which eventually became...
3: Down on the Street. Exactly. Because the rest of the band was like, we don't go to the beach. (laughs) Why the beach? (laughs) Plus, the song wasn't about Wendy anymore, so they had to change it around. Of course. So Iggy's already coming up with a second album while she was there, Yeah, and then he realized... Uh, I can't do both. It's either her or the career. So he just asked her to leave. You know, he's like, this could only be temporary, maybe. And she was sad about it. She understood, though. And they got an annulment because her parents were adamant about getting an annulment. (laughs) It was,
4: oh, thank God.
3: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, she came from a wealthy family. Yeah. And according to Ron, but there's no actual proof of this. They hung up the annulment papers on the wall for ages. (laughs) And on it, it said the reason for the annulment was Iggy's homosexuality. (laughs) (laughs) That the marriage was never consummated. (laughs) well he used that he used that one a lot didn't he
5: yeah
4: <laughs> now let me ask you you read uh Iggy Pop's pop's autobiography's 1986 autobiography how many pages did he devote to this story
3: four <laughs> four pages and it's not a big book
4: it's i mean it is a healthy percentage of <laughs> the
3: book of his three-week relationship <laughs>
4: So, about a month after the annulment, the Stooges' self-titled debut was released. Now, to give you an idea of what the mood of the record-buying public was like at that time, Woodstock happened the same week. So, while most people were looking to feel good about all the useless hippie bullshit that they all ended up betraying anyway by turning the planet into a flaming fucking shitbag... All right. (laughs) ...the Stooges were selling reality, which is a state of mind that a lot of baby boomers still have a hard time... Grasping. Breathe. <laughs>
6: another day no fun for my babe no fun no fun for my babe no fun Well, the thing is
4: about no fun is that it's not about moping or wallowing. Rather, it's exactly what Iggy Pop set out to do in the first place. This was his version of the blues, what was going on in his life. And unlike a lot of people at the time, Iggy Pop and the rest of the Stooges weren't going to ignore that shit. Because people weren't ready for the Stooges, the first album sold terribly, moved only about 32,000 copies in the same summer that the soundtrack for the fucking Let's All Congratulate Ourselves for Being Hippies musical, the fucking Hair, Hair sold 3 million. What? That same summer. It's not like, I mean, like the hippies, I mean, it was fucking mainstream. Yeah. Like it was totally mainstream. Fucking Hair, 3 million, (laughs) The Stooges self-titled debut. 32,000.
3: Still going strong.
4: (laughs) As, As Iggy put it, the Stooges were the counter to the counterculture, which even what wasn't even that much of a fucking counterculture to begin with. It was still fucking mainstream.
3: Well, he said, like I heard all this music around me, and I thought, like I gotta attack. Yeah, because that's what he did. He attacked. Like he he put it in your face. Yeah. I mean, not a lot of faces, unfortunately. <laughs> Thirty-two thousand, only. But, you know, still did.
4: Yeah, and it would take years before anyone would give the Stooges their due. But even though the Stooges weren't moving units, they found that they were suddenly the cool kids. Like, they went to New York City. Like, they are like, yeah, man, like, this is fucking cool. Like, everyone's loving the album. Everyone's all of, I guess, all of the right people are getting the album and are loving it and are giving all these guys all sorts of positive reinforcement. But that's not to say the Stooges were perfect. Even though they did make music that truly changed the world, the Stooges, and especially Iggy Pop, still did some real fucked up shit. Yeah, yeah. See, it was around this time that Iggy Pop, at the age of 23, started dating a girl named Betsy. Betsy was about 14. Now, the subject of teenage girls, when it comes to rock and roll musicians, you know, from, I would say, the beginning of the genre up until about... Mankind. (laughs) Up until about, like, the 90s is kind of when rock and roll musicians started saying, like, ah, we probably shouldn't be doing that no more. Uh, that's
3: it, it. Came from everywhere. It really like did. Elvis Presley, Jimmy Page, uh, Jerry Lee uh,
4: Lewis married his thirteen-year-old cousin.
3: Marvin Gaye met his second wife when she was seventeen.
4: Yes, it's hard to say. Like. All of them? Like, it's like, oh, you know, like, everybody did it, so it's cool. That's not a fucking excuse. This is a no. very thorny knot to untangle.
3: And and this is a hard thing even to talk about because, like, one of Iggy's ex-girlfriends, who was also very young, she said in interviews, oh, it was different then. Yeah. It was different which is something you can't always say. You can't always say those were the times.
4: You can't always say that, no.
3: And seeing how these men who were clearly having these women... Uh, girls girls yeah throwing themselves at them and then taking advantage of that that is a tough thing to hear
4: yeah it's just that's something you gotta face you you can't ignore this shit
3: no no like as me like for example like as an individual i have to decide whether i want to listen to the music or watch that show or that movie based on information i have in front of me yeah well was iggy pop a predator
4: no yeah it's not like he's r kelly
3: but was he wrong
4: Yes, very much so. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> very, very much so. Should yeah. he have
3: gone to jail? Yeah, possibly. Probably, yeah. probably should have gone to jail for that. Yeah. And honestly, we're leaving it up to you to decide.
4: Yeah, I mean that this yeah. is something that I mean it's something that you have to think about with fucking damn near every artist you know you have you have to decide i know some people walk out of the fucking room when david bowie starts playing because david bowie was also guilty of doing this shit
3: and we didn't play any michael jackson songs at our wedding we requested (laughs) no michael jackson songs
4: yeah unfortunately that now we have to do that but our first dance was rock and roll with me so so
3: uh, there you go there you go It's, it's up to you to decide
4: it's very much up to you I, I think part of why they were also into it has to do with the fact that, I mean, like I said in the first episode, and like even Iggy Pop himself said, musicians, especially like then, they can be like children. I mean, their emotional fucking quotient is quite low. I mean, Iggy Pop's maturity level at that time was probably hovering around 13 or 14 years old.
3: I agree with that, but it's still not an excuse. It's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. No, absolutely. We're going to trademark it's not an excuse.
4: <laughs> Both wearing t-shirts right now. It's not an excuse. But,
3: you know, when I wonder, like, why someone like Iggy would date someone so young, like, I can imagine that would be the reason, though.
4: Yeah. I mean, that would, that would be the reason. It wasn't necessarily a sexual thing. Like, it wasn't necessarily a predator thing. It wasn't about power. It was about, oh, I can talk to this person. This person can talk to me on the same level, whereas someone that's my own age will not put up with me being emotionally 13 years old.
3: Right, Nico was 10 years older than Iggy. She didn't last very long. She did not last
4: long at all. And the other part is, you know, it was like Iggy Pop's girlfriend said, even though it's not an excuse, it was socially acceptable for a man in his early 20s to date a teenage girl. I mean, Iggy had the approval of both of Betsy's parents. He actually went and asked them, like, is it cool if I date your daughter? I mean, it's partly because he wanted approval, but mostly because he didn't want to be arrested for transporting a minor across state lines.
3: It's those two things.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, we're not justifying this at all, but as it is with the Nazi shit... While none of it looks good, it isn't as bad as it looks. In other words, like I said, Iggy Pop is not R. Kelly. He wasn't a predator. He was just super fucking scummy. Yeah. But while all this was going on, the Stooges were touring and trying to promote their debut. See, this was a weird time in rock and roll music, because a lot of established blues and soul singers were trying to recast themselves as psychedelic acts to keep up with the times. And when it worked... Ooh, fuck it worked yeah Ooh, it worked so well it's, it's like just for example like the temptations went from singing pleasant but entirely unobjectionable songs like my girl in 1965 to singing a song called you make your own heaven and hell right on earth on an album called psychedelic shack just five years later
5: listen to me people
6: And your values change. Life becomes a strange, confusing game. Suddenly, you want the finer things in life. But you find it takes lots of hard work and
5: sacrifice. Now you're standing at the crossroads of life. What you do wrong or what you do right? One thing you must admit and you know it's true. The final decision is still up to you. I'm you
6: to laugh your facts, but what is one
3: too- Oh, now I want to listen to Earth, Wind and Fire. <laughs> <laughs> well,
4: we can do that when we get home.
3: Yeah, I have a record.
4: Yeah, of course. No, we've got uh, we actually have quite a few Earth, Wind and Fire records. <laughs> <laughs> But for every psychedelic shack, you had half a dozen other completely forgotten albums that now only exist in record collections and YouTube rips. Records like Chubby Checker Goes Psychedelic. Ah!
3: So that's not great.
4: (laughs) I like it. I think, I think it's, it's pretty good I think it's not bad Like it's It's still But it's still like It's the guy from The Twist It is the you guy know? from The Twist
3: Although he did make it Number one in the dance charts Yeah In 2008
4: Really? Yeah What for? A song <laughs> I
3: didn't write down I don't remember
4: You don't remember But what that kind of album Kind of reminds me of it Like It's the album That a record store employee Is gonna try to convince you Is like a forgotten <laughs> classic Like And that They're gonna have it For like $60 by Behind the counter, and it's like, oh, Chubby Checker goes psychedelic. Oh, dude, uh, you don't even know. They
3: don't even make these anymore. (laughs) No, really, they don't.
4: (laughs) No, they don't. It was released as I think there was a CD reissue in like the early 2000s. I think maybe the late 90s. Uh, But yeah, Chubby Checker goes psychedelic is. uh, I mean, it's out there, and you know, it's it's fine.
3: Good on Chubby Checker for trying that.
4: You know, good on Chubby Checker for trying. What this psychedelic wave meant was that in 1970, you could see a bill with Chubby Checker and the Stooges. <laughs> cool. Which, <laughs> which must have been a fantastically weird fucking night. But it, oh God, that would have been so cool to see. The psychedelic twist. <laughs> now, after the experience the Stooges had with John Cale in recording their debut, particularly in the mixing phase, the question of who would produce their second album loomed large. But finally, they settled on Don Gallucci, whose biggest <laughs> musical contribution up until that point had been playing keyboards on one of the Stooges' favorite songs when Don was just 15 years old. That song was Louie Louie. <laughs>
3: don galucci is also uh don uh he's also from don in the good times
4: who are don in the good Times?
3: they were a house band for like dick clark's uh, like afternoon show that he had Oh, that's fun yeah so the reason why i mentioned this is because when they asked like what do you think of don galucci as a producer ron and scott who are obsessed with watching tv were like oh my god <laughs> Don and the Good Times?
4: Of course. Yeah, of course we want to get produced by Don and the Good Times.
3: There's Louie Louie. Yeah,
0: yeah, we like that too. Yeah, but he's on TV. Yeah. (laughs) Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find?
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks...
4: Now, when Gallucci was in his mid-20s, about 10 years after Louie Louie, he started working at Electra Records, and he had agreed to produce the Stooges' sophomore record, but he thought that getting the band down on tape was going to be fucking impossible.
3: Yeah, because Don Gallucci actually went to go see the Stooges. Yeah. He saw them play, and he calls up Jack Holtzman. He's like, yeah, uh, this band is a great, great act, uh, <laughs> I guess. We're never going to get this on tape, though.
5: Yeah.
3: And Jack replied... You're already working for us, man.
4: <laughs> yeah, dude, yeah. like, this is, this is not an option. This is an assignment. Figure you're, it out. You're
3: gonna have to figure it out.
4: But the Stooges had learned a lot since the recording of the first album. Instead of just sort of making it up on the spot like they'd done before, the Stooges were actually crafting and developing songs. And these songs would eventually make up one of the best albums not only of the decade, but probably one of the top ten rock albums ever to be put on tape. That album was fun house
5: yeah <laughs>
4: song ever it's
3: so sexy <laughs> yeah,
4: it's so fucking good I can't believe he started writing that in his fucking closet
3: <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm in here Wendy what is it
4: so the Stooges flew to Los Angeles on Iggy Pop's 23rd birthday and began recording.
3: Oh, funny little story! As soon as, like, the first day they got to LA, Ron was walking down the street and he, I, I guess he was like jaywalking or something because there was a guy in a car who just slams on his brakes and he goes, "You fucking asshole!" <laughs> and then he looks and he sees it's John Wayne. <laughs>
4: That's amazing.
3: He got called a fucking asshole by John Wayne on his first day. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, continue.
4: I remember seeing Clancy Brown in line at Starbucks once in L.A. That was pretty cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> now, during the day, Iggy would spend all the daylight hours at the Tropicana and just take in the sun and then start each afternoon with a tab of acid before going into the studio to record all night long.
3: Oh, yeah, that was when they were at the Tropicana. Uh, Andy Warhol was staying there, too, and he went up to the Stooges. He's like, hey, come up to my room. Come hang out. And the rest of the band was like, no. <laughs> and Iggy just got up and was like, yeah, I'll hang out with Andy Warhol for a minute.
4: Yeah, Iggy Iggy Pop is definitely a, a man that personifies the power
3: of yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then takes two drops of acid. <laughs>
4: as we know, acid was nothing new when it came to the Stooges. But it was during this time that the Stooges and Iggy in particular started picking up habits that would come to define and sometimes destroy the next decade of their lives. See, the band took a break from recording in July to do a show in San Francisco at the new Old Fillmore. And who should have been in the audience but a theater troupe called the Cockettes. And after the show, Iggy went to a party at the Cockettes Communal House for the first time, it said that he tried heroin.
3: So this is in San Francisco, right, when they took their little break. And he was obsessed with this girl, Tina, there. And he's like, I want to have you. <laughs> and she's like, ah, you better come with us then because I'm not going with you. It's oh, smart. Yeah, so he went over there and he said the whole vibe and the whole house, it, it was so weird to him. He himself, he actually has not admitted that he tried heroin then. Really? Yeah, but there are plenty of sources that say that he did try Even Tina herself said, like, I think we were the first ones who gave Iggy heroin.
4: <laughs> I mean, you know, they might, I don't know, they might be telling the truth, but they might also just enjoy the coolness of being like, Yeah. I introduced Ziggy Pop to heroin exactly
3: but whatever <laughs> happened either way it got into his mind right yeah. and that was when the band where they were at the Tropicana everyone was getting to other things like John Adams uh, we haven't mentioned John Adams until now Yeah, he was there at the Tropicana too John Adams he, he was an old friend of Jimmy Silver's uh, he was hired to be a roadie mm-hmm. and John introduced the band to Coke because he he used to be a drug addict. He was in recovery for many years. And for heroin? He, for heroin. Yeah. So but he decided to get into cocaine. <laughs> This guy, John Adams, he, they always called him the fellow.
4: Yeah, ah, the fellow.
3: Yeah, he had a lot of nicknames like Flaps, <laughs> Hippie Gangster, Nichols, Peanut, the Sphinx, Goldie, the fellow. I mean, if you have a lot of nicknames, then you might have been a drug addict.
4: <laughs> yeah, no sober person gets nicknamed the Sphinx, <laughs> <laughs> Nichols, <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually around that time, yeah, like Jimmy Silver uh, had a kid so he yeah. dropped out, said, I can't be manager anymore and John Adams replaced him as the Stooges manager.
3: That's right because while Jimmy Silver was in LA with them, uh, he was getting more into macrobiotics rather than the rock and roll scene because he had that he, he had a toddler, Rachel.
4: Yeah Unfortunately, a hell of a lot more interested in encouraging the more debaucherous side of the Stooges than he was in advancing their career. And together he and Iggy started, heavily using cocaine in Los Angeles during the recording of Funhouse. And so, the transfer from psychedelics to hard drugs began. But even in the midst of this, the output of the Stooges was still phenomenal. Rather than the near, you know, one-and-done style of the debut, the Stooges recorded Funhouse on a straight night after night, grind, playing take after take after take until they finally came up with something they liked.
3: I wonder how they got to work so many long
5: hours (laughs) all the time.
4: And, you know, those of you who are absolutely insane about the Stooges... You probably already know that every single one of those takes was released a few years ago on a seven CD box set.
3: Yeah, well, it's all on Spotify now.
4: Yeah, because the box set when it originally came out, I think, cost six hundred dollars, five hundred dollars. Wow, yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, it was a seven CD box set, extremely limited edition. Uh, but yeah, but now you know everyone can hear it.
3: Yeah, and and you know why they had to work harder on these takes, though? Because first, okay, first they show up and it's a really nice studio. Like, Jack Holtzman was like, no expense spared. Yeah. But the band were like, no, this is not going to work. I mean, what's up with all this baffling stuff over here? (laughs) Baffling? What what, what do we mean that? We got to get rid of all this soundproofing. We got to make it like a live show. We
5: got
4: to make this room sound like shit. Yes.
3: So (laughs) they got all, like, they got rid of all the rugs and pillows, all that expensive shit that Jack Holtzman bought. They just threw it out. <laughs> so, Dongaluchi just let them set up the recording room just the way they liked it so they could do their live performance. So, it's kind of like they they wanted to show what they did on stage. Yeah. So, Iggy actually even used a handheld mi- microphone so he could dance and convort around just singing the tracks into it. Like they, they didn't even care. Like, the amp was in the room. <sighs> so, the noise or the instruments would bleed into one another, but they didn't care because they wanted it to sound raw.
4: And it did. It, it this should not have worked.
3: Like, <laughs>
5: yeah.
4: like Once it, again, Iggy. Yeah. Like it, it really should not have worked. Now, if you so choose, you can go check out that seven CD box set on Spotify. You can listen to fourteen different takes of "Down on the Street." You can listen to twenty eight takes of "Loose," fifteen takes of "TVI," and while I haven't listened to all of it, I've definitely listened to more of it than I should have. <laughs> like, like I definitely spent more. I def yes. I. Listen to more than I should have. Are you okay? <laughs> but, you know, there are some actual gems to be found on there. See, if you listen to the raw versions of these songs, you can hear the influences a little more clearly. For example, if you listen to Take 5 of TVI, TVI, which uh, was originally titled See That Cat, ah. you, <laughs> it's the first line of the song.
3: Good change.
4: <laughs> well, you can hear that song better for what it is. In my opinion... TVI is the Stooges doing the MC5 better than the MC5 could do themselves. <laughs>
3: You know what TVI stands for? Twat
6: Vibe.
3: <laughs> twat Vibe I. <laughs> that that means like when you want to give someone the TVI, you're mm-hmm. interested in having your twat vibing. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. Look at me, Marcus. Yeah.
4: Okay. Oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, Kathy Ashton. She was the one that came up with that, right?
3: Yeah, Ron and Scott's uh, sister. She and her friends, they would come to shows all the time, and they'd always be like, I got a TV eye on him. (laughs) You know what I mean?
4: Well, the Stooges, during the recording of this album, they didn't lose their experimental edge. They still did some real weird shit with this album. On the almost eight-minute title track, the Stooges brought in a saxophone player named Steve McKay. Steve McKay's work was fantastic on this album, and it prefigured later punk and no-wave acts like James Chance and X-Ray Specs.
3: You're absolutely right. I could. I remember hearing the saxophone on "Oh uh, Bo- Bondage Up Yours." Yeah,
4: you know it, it very much. Like is extremely, extremely influenced by that. You know uh, the uh, player in X Ray Specs, the saxophone player. She was 15.
5: Whoa.
3: I think like
4: 15 or 16. Yeah, because you know X Ray Specs only had that one album. Yeah. And so yeah, she was like, I gotta go back to school now.
3: Oh, <laughs> <All> Lisa Simpson. <laughs> doing the saxophone work he was doing heavy drugs with them too yes he was just like laying on his back with his saxophone playing as best he could <laughs> well I mean really <laughs> trying really on drugs uh, cause he was worried that he didn't know if he was gonna be any good uh, Iggy Pop actually saw him perform before and then called him up and said, come to L.A. And Steve McKay was like, well, I got college exams next week. (laughs) But you know what? You know what? I'll do them later.
4: (laughs) I will. That's fucking insane that you could just that that shit just used to happen. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, you're now you're on one of the best rock records of all time just because you happen to play one weird little show in college. But even though the title track and the literally acid fueled freak out LA blues showed how fucked up the Stooges were willing to get, the album, which clocks in at no more than eight tracks, is full of seminal rock songs like Loose. <laughs> oh,
6: look out. I went down, baby, you can tell. I took a ride in a pretty music. Now I'm moving to the street from the bed.
5: Sticking deep inside.
6: Yeah we'll
4: Unfortunately, Funhouse is kind of the end of the free will and good times for the Stooges. No, <laughs> all that drug shit like starts off real fun. Always starts off real fun. It's like, man, I got this under control. I don't know what everyone's <laughs> talking about. Man, what are they talking about? Like everyone's talking about like getting addicted and like getting into like the the depths of despair. Nah, we just recorded this a great fucking album. Everything's gonna be great from now on. I can just keep doing drugs and. I can quit when I want to. (laughs) (laughs) But although the Stooges were about to morph into the absolutely legendary live band they've come to be known as now that they truly had the songs, that reputation came, as all things do, with a price. And that is what we'll cover in the Stooges Part 3. And what we have with this episode, as with every episode, just go to my profile on Spotify and you'll find a playlist of all the songs that are available on the platform so you can maybe hear some new music that you
3: haven't heard before. Even Chubby Checker goes mm, so del- nope, psychedelic? No, <laughs> Psychedelic? No, It's not on there. Why is it not nope. on there?
4: Because the record company that owns the rights is not thought to put it online and submit it to Spotify.
3: And I'll make a call.
4: Yeah. You, you make a call. You let them know. <laughs> all right. We'll see everybody uh, next week. Thank you for listening.
3: Goodbye. Goodbye, Victoria. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs)